the Paradiso, Cantos 2 to 9, that is the heaven of the moon, Mercury, and Venus. And so Dante ascends with Beatrice to the heaven of the moon. What are we to make of Canto 2 with its outmoded scientific and scholastic arguments? With all probability, Dante inserted it in order to catch the attention of the reader who was more concerned with science, the ratio, the metaphysics, or the spiritual way. It's a sort of life jacket thrown overboard from Dante's ship of the intellect, as he calls it, for the potentially floundering. Catch hold of this, and maybe you will travel with me a little further. However, for the purpose of our work, we should go to the substance of what is said in these cantos and leave the more curious to read the commentaries. First note the poet's extended address to the reader. He is worried for his readers, who are trying to follow his text and its meaning. He lightens their intellects to little boats following the wake left by his intellect as they sail across uncharted waters of a vast ocean. Indeed, it is easy to approach the spiritual with an intellect with an intellect than sorry, what have I written there? <laughs> Indeed, it is easy to approach the spiritual with an intellect that is sceptical or caught in the psychic worlds, with the result that damage rather than healing may take place. The poem, as already emphasised in the preceding introduction to the Paradiso, is concerned with contemplation of life and its ultimate meaning, and will not satisfy the curiosity of a mere rational approach. Like a good director, Dante has from time to time spiced his tale with asides in order to hold the reader's attention. And such is Canto too. A man who on the literal level of interpretation maintains that he has been to the moon must surely give some account in terms of the science of his day. The clue to our approach comes in line 8. Minerva and Apollo guide him and the nine muses point out the stars known as the great and little bears. The little bear contains the North Pole star. Our search, says Dante, is for the abiding golden fleece. Surely this is easy to interpret. Dante starts with wisdom, Minerva, and this he will convey through poetry, Apollo, which he hopes will be inspired, the muses, to give an, in, an indication of right orientation for the little barks of our intellect. The journey ahead is towards Christ, the true Apollo, and is therefore concerned with the eternal, the bread of angels, quotation. The long discussion concerning the markings on the moon serves no more than to re-emphasise what the poet has said in the opening canto 
and that is, God reveals himself more here and less there, involving us in a sort of game of hide-and-seek. Furthermore, that there are various varying degrees of power and intellect in the order of the angelic intelligences. The whole company of heaven is rather like a vast symphony orchestra, with all having separate parts, but still playing in harmony. All stand potentially alike in the eyes of God, but all have a different role, as complex as our own myriad of separate personalities in this world. We all reflect the light of the Incarnation differently. So as to unnerve the reader, who could only appreciate the literary level, Dante and Beatrice enter the substance of the moon and do not rest on its surface. This surely is a giveaway symbol, not the shell, but the kernel, not the form, but the essence. We are thereby invited to consider the significance of the moon at a level other than the astronomical or that of contemporary space exploration. Dante informs his reader that he is surrounded by traditional imagery associated with the moon. It is diamond-like. It recalls a pearl. It is like glass, a mirror. It is the channel of communication of all that is above to that which is below. It is the foundation holding deep mysteries. A right understanding of these images is of paramount importance. First, the heavens is like the diamond of the true intellect that will cut through the illusions of the mirror on the wall. Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of us all. It is the pearl of great price. A pearl is developed within the oyster through its tears, as it obliterates the grit that has strayed within it. It is like a glass that helps us to focus more clearly, like our glasses. It is the mirror reflecting the light of the glory, as does the physical moon in the night sky. It is the mystery of God being with us, the Shekinah the soul in all its glory. Considers Dante's text, it concerns essentially the feminine, the receptive. Picada de Donati, the Empress Constance, the singing, singing of the Ave Maria, the true fruit of the womb, Jesus, who must be born in each of us, it is also about the breaking of vows, the inconstancy of our will, our waxing and waning in the intensity of the light that enlightens all who come into this world. It also concerns our sexuality. For example, Canto 5, lines 1 to 84, should be taken in the context of Canto 5 of the Inferno and of the Purgatorio. Francesca da Rimini was trapped in the vortex of her passions. 
Pia de Tolome, unshriven in her prison tower, amid the malaria-ridden marshes of the, of the Maremma, alone, left in the struggle of the mind with the passions, without counsel and absolution. Francesca is self-pitying, the epitome of her sin. Pia, on the other hand, evokes our pity. Both are at a deeper level about the will, or the lack of it, our procrastination, and the covenant we personally make at a deep level, the Lord our God. In the heaven of the moon, as already noted, Dante speaks to women, the receptive principle. But the feminine is only fertile in relation to the masculine. Therefore, the heaven is essentially about the seeds of life. Figuratively, like Joseph, we will not be seduced by Potiphar's lust-ridden wife. That's Genesis um, 39. It's interesting that Potiphar, as a name, means belonging to the sun or the gift of the risen one. She was anything but that. Nor will we delay. Francesca is, as it were, Potiphar. And Pia de Ptolemy is that we will not delay but make haste to our repentance. Dante may have loved other women besides his wife. He was not perfect, but he was a penitent. Moreover, he did return to his ideal. Beatrice is not only the epiphany granted to us, she also represents the covenant we may make with the Lord at the depth of our being. And this vow cannot escape our sexuality. Indeed, it is very much part of it, and it should make us to stand right before God. For Orthodox Christians, there are only two ways permissible, celibacy or marriage. Both understand the body as representing the mystery of the temple. For example, a man and a woman learn to understand their relationship as sacred, and that their life together is called to mirror wisdom. Such is true parenthood. It is a lifelong growing and maturing, an overcoming of selfishness, freeing the human spirit from the domination of the physical desires and passions. The Jew understands circumcision as perfecting the covenant. The Christian appears to the fulfilment of the law through love, what the book of Deuteronomy calls the circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16 and also 30, verse 6. Circumcision is understood as having been superseded by the gospel, which is the true song of joy. See Acts 15, Galatians 5, verse 2. As Dante learnt to his bitterness in the dark ward of his passions, sin in sexual matters 
brings about a flaw in the principle of the heaven of the moon within us. That is the will, the waxing and waning of our will. It has to be rectified. Hence Dante's journey down through hell and the struggle up Mount Purgatory. Therefore this, the first of the heavens, is supremely about our resolutions, our failures, our waxing and waning, our will, the good that we would do but fail to do, the deep intention of our heart. And the com commandment to be contemplated here is clearly, thou shalt not bear false witness. Our yea must be yea, and our nay, nay. There is, there is to be learned no shilly-shallying. The honesty of our personal covenant will open our heart and make it receptive. It enables life to flow downwards to the earthly paradise and upwards once more to the celestial roads. It is like St. John Climacus's ladder that reaches to the heavens and which barely touches the earth. Of course, we make rash, often immature vows and put foolish shackles around our mind and soul. These are the growing points like gates that have to be unlocked by grace and the wise direction of a spiritual father. They teach us that we are indeed children in the hands of a loving father. Generally, these vows, quotation marks, are aspirations, pleas for mercy, loving attention. And Italian literature has a noteworthy example of this in Manzoni's great novel, I Promessi Sposi, or The Betrothed, which is very well translated into English. Lucia, in the story, is betrothed to Renzo, and she is abducted by brigands for the sexual amusement of the innominato, the unnamed count of the tale. Lucia offers to God her virginity if only she may be protected from the count's evil intentions. She is saved. The nominato's heart is changed through conversion, through a, conver a conversation with Federigo Borromeo, a chapter which is central to the whole book. And then it is left to a wise friar to unlock Lucia's vow. The lesson here is of a young peasant woman's innocency and desire for a pure marriage and Mansoni handles his tale with great feeling and insight. A little um, footnote there. There are actually three versions of the novel. The earliest, which I think is the best, um, is unfortunately not translated into English. And then um, Mansoni um, rewrote the novel a second time. Then he rewrote it a third time and it's the third version that is translated into English. But if any of you can read Italian, I do recommend to you the earlier version. It is more immediate and direct.
and the earlier version is called, if my memory is correct, Renzo e Lucia. The commandment not to bear false witness indicates another aspect of this heaven, and that is the relationship between our words, intentions and deeds, for such are at the heart of any covenant. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 should be read with attention. It is foolish to be rash with words, better that they be few, and beware, as the, pre the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, it is easy that thy mouth cause thy flesh to sin. In all this, right contemplation of the scriptures, the tradition of the church, the writings of the fathers and the wise are essential. We need teachers, a wise starets, the inner significance of the day and its unravelling require constantly being open to us. Mere intellectuality, a sort of Gnosticism, is a fatal concoction. The person who thinks that they know, that they have the so-called secret knowledge, is in reality lost. Intellectual pride is a stumbling block that hides one from the life of the Beatitudes. The intellect easily judges, thinks it knows. Judge not, and be not judged. And this morning I was reading a thought of Simon Meyer. Confess that wise ignorance, that when it exists, there is true science. He means science in the wider context than merely um, the physical. Confess that wise lack of knowledge. So if you think you know, you're going to stumble. Dante dedicates four cantos to the heaven of the moon and thereby does not expect us to take his argument lightly. Canto three is particularly memorable. The faces of the inconstant to vows appear pearly, faint and indistinct. He speaks with the soul of Picarda, the sister of his friend Forese Donati, who we met in purgatory. Dante conveys her gentleness and kindness skillfully, making her a portrait of one who yields to the pleasure of our others, pressure of others, lacking steadfastness of will and resolve. However, her joy is now complete. Her eyes are ridenti, laughing as she speaks, smiling, sparkling. She is perfectly happy to reveal herself to him in this the slowest heaven, the one furthest from the Empyrean. Notice that Dante um, changes the order. We would think the moon would be the one that's going the fastest, but um, 
You know, as in one of Shakespeare's great plays, The Taming of the Shrew, you have to learn the opposite in the spiritual life. Remember, the shrew is told to say it's midnight at midday and so on. So you've got to think completely opposite to, to the rational mind in paradise. She is perfectly happy to reveal to herself to him in the slowest heaven. Lines 52 to 54. Li nostri affetti, che solo infiammati son nel piacere dello Spirito Santo, le tizan del suo ordine formati. The sole good pleasure of the Holy Ghost kindles our hearts which joyously espouse, informed by him, whate'er delights him most. Dante perceives a divine likeness mirrored in all about him. Since love has laid their self-will to rest all around him now long only for what is theirs, their desire is purely for God and they are therefore perfectly happy with their place and the grace bestowed thereby. Lines 85 to 87. En la sua volontà de nostra pace, ed è quel, mar, quel mare al qual tutto si muove, ciò che il cria e che natura face. And in his will is our peace. It is that sea to which all moves, both what it creates and what it makes. Dante then realizes that everywhere in heaven is paradise and that the grace of the supreme good reigns in different measure wheresoever it wills. It is one, quote, it is one sweet life diversified. The souls vanish singing the Ave Maria, the great hymn of the Incarnation into which we have all been made partakers through baptism and the Eucharist. Canto 4 emphasizes our in the introduction to the meaning of the heaven of the moon. Our self-will paralyzes us and we need to be freed from its bonds. If the will won't, nothing can force it, even our least acquiescence signs a pact with false, says Dante. Like Jacob Burma, Dante sees in our free will the whole mystery, the principle of all things in our mortal life. Our will is engendered by the illusion of images, idols. We grasp after vanities. The eternal intellect of the divinity is free will which grasps after nothing. It would only share in love, in relationship. In love it resides, hence the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. It cannot be possessed by anything. It is neither far nor near, neither high nor low, but is everywhere, and yet it is not known until we know it through the love 
of, as it were, nothing, just fulfillment in the mystery of the Lord incarnate. For it is invisible and only to be known in the heart. The anger is to fall away from his will. Conversion, metanoia, turning, is to discover ourselves in the arms of the divine compassion and mercy. Hence, the profundity of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Dante is freed from the paralysis of his will. Beatrice teaches that the light whose radiance runs through all the spheres illumines the whole company of heaven. Through the saints and the blessed we see and likewise seek the light and therefore Canto 5 lines 118 to 120 Take thy will of us and sate thine ears. Being members incorporate into the mystical body makes us friends of a vast crowd of unseen witnesses. It's a life totally opposed to the so-called lifestyle of modern individualism with its commercialism and grasping of it after things, after experiences. It is koinonia. I use the Greek because the Greek means more than simply fellowship in a Boy Scout sense of the word. And the life of agape, which is badly translated as merely charity, the life of love. <coughs> love in relationship, koinonia. The Heaven of Mercury, Canto 5, line 91 to Canto 7. The Heaven appears on first acquaintance to be very politically orientated and a mere support to the poet's own political ideas. The, the Emperor Justinian takes centre stage at a superficial level, the ambitious in this life seem to be the heaven's sole objective. Maybe considering the ancient god Mercury can help us here. After all, it is his heaven. Through the emblem of philosophical insight, he was also a very worldly wise god, and also to be considered to be the god of thieves, an appropriate god for politicians and the ambition, ambitious of this world. We must lay aside the latter idealistic neoplatonic interpretations of Marsilio Ficino and his circle here, and consider the older classical understanding of a god who is hard to tie down, just as a drop of mercury on a hard surface, for he's ever scheming and ambitious. And appropriately, the commandment associated with this heaven is, Thou shalt not steal. 
how to break the shell and get at the kernel of Dante's teaching here. One clue is to realize that the various heavens are not isolated but interdependent, related to each other, communicating energies. Furthermore, all the souls who reveal themselves in the various heavens do not dwell there, for they are with God in the celestial rose. They descend in order to make known to the poet various degrees or stations of spiritual growth through contemplation. Above Mercury is Venus, below is the moon, where Dante listened to hard words relating to the will. Some think of the sheer vitality of Venus and the control, compliance and conformity of the political state described in Cantus VI has to be related to the will without waxing and waning. It is one thing to have an ideal, Venus, and then it's quite another thing to know how to interpret it, Mercury, and finally of the necessity to relate it to the will, the moon. You see how, how the heavens are working inward. This explains the emphasis made in the heaven of Mercury on responsibility and leadership. And who better to represent this than the Emperor Justinian of Constantinople, who lived from 527 to 565. Justinian, who Dante saw uh, in the mosaics of, of, um, uh, of Ravenna, where he lived and wrote the Paradiso, Justinian struggled to hold together a decaying empire. He codified Roman law and established government in Ravenna, where Dante lived, whilst writing the Paradiso. Through Justinian, Dante saw the divinely ordained restoration of imperial sovereignty in the West. He would have been aware of these facts through the famous mosaics for which Ravenna is now famous. The Orthodox East will not go along with Dante's arguments for the empire continuing under Charlemagne and his successors, who are seen as obstarts and part of a Germanic plot made under a series of popes from Germany who conspired for a political supremacy of the so-called Holy Roman Empire. The policy ended with the Greeks being expelled from Italy and the final act of schism brought about in 1054 by the controversy over the philoque clause inserted by the Roman Church into the Nicene Creed. And it's interesting to note here that the spurious and divisive donation of Constantine, which Dante hated, dates from these turbulent years. The quality of the heaven of Mercury is to seek consistency through the institution of laws and their explanation through empathy. An example of classical music helps 
to understand the heaven. The composer may be inspired by the ideals of the heaven of Venus. He may be overwhelmed with inspiration. This, however, has to be tempered and controlled through music science and annotation. There are rules of harmony and rhythm that he must follow. What seems to be an encumbrance awfully grants his freedom of expression. Indeed, the rules help to incarnate his inspiration into a form that may be then interpreted by others. Lack of knowledge of these, or a cheat, unfurbo in Michelangelo's terms, will be quickly exposed. I've got a little footnote about Michelangelo here, because he used to judge his um, um, fellow artists under four headings. His highest praise for a work of art was, note, this is the work of a good man. Secondly, he didn't think it was all that good. He'd look at the work and say, this work will harm nobody. And then, he thought it was a pretty poor thing. This is the work of a furbo, a cheat, a knave. And finally, and I think much about modern art lives up to what Michelangelo termed, this is the work of a sad man. And we can add all woman in, the, in our times. I'm thinking of particular beds and piles of bricks, etc. <laughs> Um, sorry to keep on quoting Maya, but he has so much good to say. Ma Maya says, Music is the science of sounds and their regulated combination to the end of delighting and moving the heart. Such is also the right understanding of law, and especially the commandments. Faith is the science of the soul, regulating the passions to the end of delighting and moving the heart. So all that puritanical understanding of the Ten Commandments is nonsense. A right understanding of the commandments should make us delight and move our hearts to joy. Therefore the commandment forbidding stealing takes oneself, taking, that is the taking to oneself the property of others, is thrown into context. According to biblical teaching, as we have already seen, a person's property is an extension of themselves, their glory, worth, value, kabod, in Hebrew. To steal reverberates through the spiritual worlds to the divine glory itself. Theft, or the grabbing for oneself, is totally contrary to the spirit of this heaven which has tamed through the old and new covenants the thieving God of old with right law, taming and focusing his ever-wandering mind and hands. In the Christian heaven, the old rogue, that is Mercury, has even become the epitome of a quiet, attentive devotion.
From a contemplative point of view, it is the heaven of good and wise advice, a light to lighten my path. Psalm 118 or 119, depending how you calculate the Psalms, emphasizes the need for this heaven to be in the midst of a civilized people. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall keep it with my whole heart. That Psalm 118 or 19 is the, is the psalm that monastics in the Western tradition used to say daily. And in the Judaic tradition, it relates to all the different paths or energies on, on the tree of life, because each section is associated with a letter, and the letters, as you know, are, are on the Kabbalistic tree. And um, if you look at that Psalm 119 or 18 in that light, it, it's the remembering of the essential statutes, laws, as one moves from one degree to the next, so that one doesn't get lost in the psychic worlds. To return to my text, we must walk in the way of truth and know what is good and what leads to perdition. A society needs rules to keep it from decadence and hooliganism. Right principles give us integrity and consistency of intent. The commandments understood through our Lord who fulfilled the Torah and lived through the grace of the Holy Spirit are basic to the way ahead before us. He came to fulfill and to destroy nothing. Our ancestors understood clearly the significance of dressing and washing in the morning as a preparation for the day. Our shoes go where they are directed and are therefore emblems of the way. How foolish, for example, to leave Jerusalem, the city of peace, and to go to a dump like Jericho. No wonder the traveller fell among thieves and was left by the hypocrisy of the world to waste by the wayside. Only our Lord, through the Good Samaritan, could care and restore him back to life and health. St. Augustine wrote a profound commentary on this parable. It is not for nothing that the Guild of Shoemakers took it as their theme when they dedicated a stained-glass window in the Cathedral of Chartres. We should remember that as we dress, we should be putting on, as it were, St. Patrick's breastplate. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all who love me, 
Christ in mouth of friend, a friend and stranger. Dante makes it perfectly clear that this heaven holds the secret of good government and peace, which the praises sung at the beginning, the praises of which are sung at the beginning of Canto Seven. Our ambition should be directed towards this end, social responsibility, understanding that our personal, personal liberty ends where our neighbours begins. Therefore, Dante's great outburst, Hosanna, Sanctus Deus Saboth, Supe Illustrans Claritate Tua, Felices Ignes Horum Malakoth, Hosanna, Holy God of Sabbath, who dost abundantly illuminate with thy brightness the blessed fires of these realms. All advice, whether of the state, education, or in the home, should be related to living a holy and good life. This is done through a balanced emphasis on prayer and an attentive contemplative understanding. The prince of this world will throw all that he's got at this heaven of Mercury. And the psalmist speaks at length on the issue. For example, read Psalm 56. There is nothing worse than bad law and the deceitful manu manipulation of power. Once again, the cantor gives Dante the excuse to attack the donation of Constantine as invalid in spirit. As said elsewhere and said many times, the Dante donation of Constantine was a root cause of all the misery and lust for power and wealth within the papacy and the Western Church. Little did he know that it was a spurious document and time has justified his perception. Whenever we wish to bring into existence the good, the true and the beautiful, we contemplate this heaven with its emphasis on form and law. At its best, this heaven produces prophets those rare souls who see through static laws and conventions and interpret the spirit and not the letter. It is not unsurprising, therefore, to find that the climax to the heaven of Mercury is a discussion on our redemption through the crucifixion. How was it possible that the just penalty for Adam's sin was Calvary? asked Dante. How could the incarnate Lord die under the law of such, such a shameful death? How could the cross make amends for our transgression? Was the fall of Jerusalem and the diaspora or part of the will of divine justice? Then Beatrice's answer revolves around two essential threads of thought. First, 
the mystery of God's self-giving, his kenosis, his self-emptying, which demonstrates the divine humility and compassionate largesse. Our redemption was not a matter of wiping the slate clean, but God's actual participation in historical time and our mortal flesh. God renewed our life and gave us the possibility of participation in the world's redemption through our own sanctification. Secondly, history, the course of chronological time, that is, the course of worldly events, is just, are just. We are the victims of our own selfishness and misdirected actions. For example, just to go for my text today, the whole ecological crisis that we're in today, Dante would say it's just because we've misused nature. We've misused it through our ambition, ambitions, false ambitions and greed and misuse of so-called law and science. Our personal sins reflect and involve others, and it is the innocent that suffer. The fall of Jerusalem was the sign of the was the sin of the few who cried out for the Lord's crucifixion falling on the backs of the many. That's Dante. Likewise, the walls of wars of history are devised by the few and involve the many among which the innocent suffer. It is the child, the young, mothers, the infirm, the handicapped who do not escape the terrors of war. Thus the cross teaches Beatrice stands at the centre of life, at the very spot where evil manifests its power in the hearts of men committing the innocent to outrage. Here, as we shall see, when we come to the heaven of the martyrs, that is Mars, Dante's, lies Dante's insight into how the anger brewing in the hearts of men and women causes the cross to be imprinted on history. It is enough to think of the Crusades, the plundering of the Moors, the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, the rise and fall of tyrants, the sufferings of the many under Hitler and Stalin, right up to the events of our own times. Especially the ecological disaster facing us today cannot be blamed on God. It results rather from the actions of the few to involve the many and cause the suffering of the innocent. That brings us to now the heaven of Venus, Cantos 8 to 9. Venus, the irresistible goddess, who does not long for her blessings? We should all long to find true love, indeed to be overwhelmed with the eternity of love, for such is the, truly the victory of love ordained by man between, uh, sorry, ordained by God between man and woman. 
True love is a divine madness that would make us run through the street shouting, I'm in love. It radiates from our faces and our bodies glow with rapture. The truth of the matter is that we must be silent about our love and veil it from the profane and only whisper it to one another. Venus, Mercury and the Moon are planets tinged with the shadow cast by the Earth. They are fundamental heavens and relate to us intimately. Note how they are very much concerned with the formation of our personality. For how we love moulds us. Their balance, that is of the heavens, enable us to become socially responsible. And they are, must be rooted in our will to live. Thou shalt not commit adultery is clearly the commandment of this heaven. The commandment goes far beyond our sexuality and relates to all expression of things good, true and beautiful. Commandments' implications become quite clear and distinct when we consider life's marketplace and how it tampers with weights and measures, quality and the exchange of money. Tinged with the earth's shadow, these three heavens in our world become easily corrupted with the husks of evil. They require our constant attention as each day unfolds. They remind us of our failures and lie behind our confession for sin. Are we not apprehensive? Too easily Venus will waver our will. Likewise we strive to accomplish our worldly ambitions, but like our physical desires they too have to be controlled. Mercury and God-centered. Such extremes need to be balanced in the resolve of our will. Furthermore, we need the grace to persevere and to succeed in all this business of living, living in conversation with the Lord should become genuine and dynamic. For through our hearts being open and real desires being known, we may begin to see the aim of our lives. As Thomas Traherne says, in truth, we need to desire and to will like God, for in him is our peace. It is intentional that no calendar of saints approach Dante in these heavens, but persons like you and me who lived out their lives in the world's merry-go-round. We have all been inconstant or ambitious and have loved foolishly and unwisely. We have all stumbled and have fallen short of our calling. The saints know well these earth-tinged heavens. They too contemplate their deep meaning and have eventually moved on to higher heavens. No one 
escapes the will, ambition, and the need to love. These heavens, which are volatile with the earth casting shadow, are of course recipients of the heavens above. It is these that enable to make them stable. Note the word rajasi, which means ray down in line 3 of Canto 8. The convivio, that is in Book 2, Section 6, describes the rays of heaven as a path whereby the particular virtues of each heaven descends upon things here below. For example, our passionate love is not something shot out of the blue like an erring arrow from Cupid's bow, but as a recipient of the heavens above it. It must receive and radiate the light of the heaven of the sun. That is, as we shall see, heavenly love and knowledge. It must be also as strong as Mars and as merciful as Jupiter and as contemplative as Saturn. We must forget the cheap and false concepts of love banned about in the marketplace. Martin Buber, in his novel For the Sake of Heaven, tells of a young man who on, see, on seeing under the nightdress the bare feet of a young married woman leapt out of the window of the room rather than be tempted to sin. He had to learn, and that's the substance of the novel, that to run away accomplishes little. Rather, he should have faced her in dialogue and learn that every heaven becomes an earth in this life. And every heaven is incarnated, in other words. If only we enter into dialogue, into relationship. The nature of the heavens is to incarnate their redemptive power in the glory of the kingdom, the earthly paradise. And these first three heavens are concerned with how to relate to God and his epiphanies. Too easily we pass by or fail to recognize. Now in Cantos 8-9, to Dante meets three memorable souls who discuss with him the power of natural love. First, a few notes. First, Charles... Charles Martel, Charles Martel, twelve seventy one to ninety five, crown king of Hungary and heir to the throne of Naples, was the grandson of Charles I of Anjou, who had supported Florentine Guelph interests. Martel visited Florence in twelve ninety four, and established a firm friendship with Dante. He was a friend of poets and heard Dante's canzone, Voi che intendo il terzo ciel moverti, You that by your thought move the third heaven, <coughs> Venus, and admired the poet's perfect gift of calligraphy. It's tragic, but we have no examples left of the poet's writing. Here is a clear example of how 
poetry, music, art, may awaken a heaven within us, an aid to draw down its rays. Not to be awoken by the heavens leaves the world in poverty, and humdrum monotonous commonplace. The virtues of the heavens awaken an individual's consciousness, and thereby a society is given a vision to live by, rather than the idols of the, un, of the hidden persuaders of the media of the day. The conversation between Martel and Dante that ensues indicates that there are two stages of spiritual awareness. The first is when we perceive God in all things. The second is when we see all things in God. This is what is happening to Dante as he rises through the heavens. Note how Martel's ready response to Dante echoes that of Francesca da Rimini in Inferno V. But here, in paradise, we are not caught up the lust, but caritas, agape. Lines 32 to 39 should be read in this light. Martel draws down the rays, just as Dante's verses inspired them in his audience. There's a conduit of flow. With Francesca and her lover Paolo, there was no opening to the upper worlds. They were locked together in the storm of their passions. Their love never radiated outwards to others, never looked beyond themselves. It was claustrophobic, wrong, adulterous. Thus, Charles Martel and Francesca da Ribeni represent two different aspects of passionate love. One, open, frank, courteous and charitable, the other grasping, enclosed in its own self-pity. Through Martel, Dante is emphasising that the response to love, uh, in quotation marks, must be masculine and not manipulative. That is, the weak side of the feminine. He's thinking, don't, 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 don't get get caught up with modern arguments of you know the feminism. He's thinking in terms of the soul, the, the masculine and the feminine that is within us. Our thought should be inspired so that it moves the third heaven, Venus, in order that it pours down its rays on us. Love must be enlightened, awake, like a sword cutting through the webs of illusion. Poor Francesca was caught and a prisoner in those webs. Whereas true love is affectionate and generous. We do not seduce to possess, but are called to each other. Called to each other and learn to grow as one. In this growing, we must never ignore how each one of us is different. Though right through right love, we grow aright, finding our true calling and res then responding to it wholly. And that is the right response. Lines 142 to 
148. Se il mondo laggiù ponesse mente al fondamento che natura pone, seguendo lui avria buona la gente. Ma voi torcete alla religione, tal che fianato cignesi la spada, e fate re di tal che da sermone, onde la traccia vostra è fuori di strada. If men on earth could bear in mind and strive to build on the foundation laid by nature, there have fine folk with virtues all alive. But you distort the pattern of the creature. You cloister him that's born to wield the sword and crown him king who ought to be a preacher. Thus from the path you wander all aboard, abroad. Our personality and its maturing depends on how we respond to Venus's heaven. The second person is a lady called Kunitsa. Here's a lady who takes prudes by surprise. What's she doing in paradise? She speaks from the heart and delights in giving generously. She's the total opposite to her brother, the notoriously wicked Ezzelino da Romano. Both grew up privileged persons, but both matured into totally different personalities. Ezzelino cut himself off from love, and so his heart turned to hatred of his fellow men. Cunizzo was just as passionate and ardent, but her heart opened to love and desired to incarnate it with and amongst people. One was a murderer, the other a compassionate soul. And the reader would be surprised to learn that she had four husbands and at least two lovers, one being the troubadour poet Sordello, who we met in the Purgatorio. She lived to the ripe old age of over 80 years and was known for her acts of mercy and compassion. And Dante may have known her, for he was about 15 when she died in the household of his close friend Guido Calvacanti. Her exuberance on earth was a quality of Venus's heaven. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And finally, Fulke of Marseille. Thirdly, a poet who dedicated a life to pleasure, but who eventually became a Cistercian monk, and later to be an abbot, and finally the Bishop of Toulouse. He answers for us any perplexity as to why these these pleasure lovers are in paradise. In this heaven there is no more repentance, that having already been accomplished. Rather it is a place where one learns to smile. The souls contemplate with ecstasy and joy the wondrous order of how God draws out of our fumbling responses and attempts to love strange patterns that are in heaven understood to be manifestations of his power. Our human love does 
relate to divine love. Of this mystery, no better example has been left to us than the harlot Rahab, who through her marriage to Salmon became an ancestor of Christ in the incarnate life. Uh, see Joshua 2 and um, 6 verse 22 and Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 and Hebrews 11 verse 31 and the book of James, the epistle of St. James chapter 2 verse 25. To have loved unwisely is better than not to have loved at all.